helping you to be the best version of you. This is the Team Forces Podcast. Here's your host, Heleth Kendrick. Welcome to the Team Forces Podcast. Today we speak to Darren Edwards. Darren is a former mountaineer, an army reservist who was paralysed in a near-death experience in 2016, just 26 years of age. We talk about his incredible story and also how he's learnt to build strength through adversity. We talk about his free diving, which is amazing, his kayaking 1,400 kilometres around the British Isles, and he is actually the first disabled person to complete the iconic World Marathon Challenge. Welcome, Darren. It's really great to have you here on the Team Forces podcast. Tell me, firstly, a little bit about yourself. Well, thank you for having me. My name is Darren Edwards. I am now a disabled adventurer, uh, very proud to be ex-military. I sort of, you know, spend most of my time during the week traveling around, speaking at different places, and most of the time planning kind of ambitious things to take on in the future. There's always got some kind of purpose behind it and some real kind of genuine drive and motivation that goes beyond selfish things that I'd just like to do for the sake of it. It's always got to be part of a bigger purpose, I think. That's great. And we'll talk a little bit more about that bigger purpose. But tell me a bit about your sort of childhood. Where did you grow up and how did you kind of get into the military? Yeah, I don't sound like it, but I grew up in East London. Mm -hmm. So at some point in time, I used to pronounce my R's as W's. (laughs) And I kind of had a, you know, West Ham football strip as a young boy and, and that kind of stuff. And to be completely honest, I grew up in a very inner city kind of environment, which was completely alien to where I would fall in love with, which was kind of, you know, the mountains and, and the countryside. And I was very fortunate that when I was a teenager, my family relocated to, to Shropshire. All of a sudden, you've got kind of the mountains of North Wales on your doorstep. And I started to, you know, throw myself into the adventure world, mountaineering and climbing. And uh, yeah, it was there that I learned, I guess, the values of pushing yourself out of your comfort zone and the values of resilience and perseverance. And it was ultimately that. It was ultimately kind of having these experiences in the outdoors and seeing people that were from a military background on the mountains. And obviously there's a lot that goes on adventurous training wise in North Wales. And I think it was those early interactions as a teenager that kind of sparked a an interest and an admiration for the forces. On one particular little adventure down to, to South Wales on the Brecon Beacons, I met somebody who was training for selection to the SAS. That planted a seed in my head. And I'd, I was already sort of in the process of joining the Army Reserve. I live in Shrewsbury, which has got a really fantastic rifles unit based in the middle of the town. So my initial kind of interest was was with them. And that's kind of where I joined. And then it was meeting this person who was doing some long march over the the mountains of, of, of Penifan in his attempt to join the SAS that kind of got me thinking about whether or not I was the sort of person that could could do it on a reserve basis because the SAS has a reserve uh, or two reserve units attached to it, two, three, and two, one. And yeah, I think it was that chance encounter that motivated me to to apply myself. And, and that's kind of where I guess life was headed in the two years before before my accident. So I went through the, the selection process for that, the first stage of which is called Hills, which is a very overly fluffy term, I think, for something that is pretty arduous, or not even pretty arduous, it's really arduous. They're testing and they're they're testing for that ability to to be resilient, to persevere, to be comfortable with uncertainty. And they're looking for people that can really push themselves beyond perceived physical limits. And um yeah, it was not always enjoyable, but it was definitely a process that brings out, you know, your, your kind of character growth and your sense of, of who you are. Only once you've passed that, you can then go on to the sort of training process where they, you know, start to mould you into the sort of soldier that the, the Special Forces Reserve uses. So operating in small teams, doing things that were completely, you know, out of the ordinary for me and, and were real uh, once in a lifetime type experiences. And that's kind of where life was. You know, if we if we bring that forward to to summer of 2016, everything was headed in a really great sort of you know positive direction, and it looked like a lot of these dreams I had, both when it came to mountaineering, which was to climb Everest, and from a military point of view, which was to to serve with the Special Forces Reserve, were within grasp. That's kind of where life changed, and and things took an unexpected turn, which would become the greatest challenge of my life. Going back to being a young lad, uh, obviously college, university, did you did you go through that or did you go straight into the forces? Yeah, no, I went to university. I went straight back down to London. I don't know why when I think about it, but I 
wasn't sure what I wanted to do with my life really. So I kind of went to university as a bit of a stopgap just to have a three year kind of, you know, prolonged th- think about what I wanted to do. And uh, I'd always loved history. So it was a no brainer to study at a degree level. It was whilst I was there, I spent the whole three years telling people I wasn't going to be a history teacher. And then the first thing I pretty much applied to do was to be a history teacher. So, <laughs> Were you a history teacher at one point? Yeah. So I okay. just started my first sort of proper full-time post, um, first proper job as a teacher in 2016. Tell me a little bit about it was 2016. Is that right? when you had your injury, um, talk me through what you were doing in the day, you know, what were you kind of thinking about? Because I, I watched one of your, your keynote speaker, um, um, and it was quite a, a very moving speech actually, but, but talk to me a little bit about sort of how you, that, that you started that day and, and what happened in that, in that sort of the run up to that event. Yeah. There was nothing really out of the ordinary about the 6th of August, 2016. It was a day that kind of was very familiar and kind of, you know, resembled many that had come before it, which was the opportunity to get into the mountains with the guy that I'd first started climbing with, you know, who was my best friend. He's based down in Portsmouth with the Navy, so he's not around all the time. So, you know, these opportunities we would grab with both hands to to make the short drive down the road to, to North Wales and to, to climb together. And on that particular day, we chose a rock face that is probably you know, just inside the Sedonia National Park and is called World's End. And World's End is 180 foot high and it's broken up into four big kind of pitches that you you climb in turn with your climbing partner. And with Lee climbing, it's the first climber, the Lee climber that takes the kind of, well, the biggest sort of degree of risk because they're putting in the protective gear as they ascend the rock face. And they then, once at the top, can protect and belay that second climber up to them. And we'd spent the whole day, more or less, kind of crisscrossing different routes, climbing to the top, coming back down and trying different routes of various severity and kind of, you know, um, just having a, having a great time. And I kind of convinced Matt that there was time for one final, you know, climb to the top. And he was quite keen to get back home because he was going on a first date that night. That's a kind of a memory I'll always have is just twisting his arm to stay. And we were kind of three quarters up the rock face and there was, you know, one pitch that was to the top. And I kind of said, like, I'll lead it. And I led this final pitch, which was probably 35 to 40 foot. And I left a ledge that was, you know, no more than six foot wide, which is where Matt was kind of going to belay me from below as I was putting my gear into the rock. And I got to the top of the of the of the section, to the top of World's End. And it was only when I was belaying Matt and he tried maybe three or four times to get up this particular route and he he, you know, wasn't able to, that I kind of shouted down that I'll abseil back down to you and we'll walk off and, and take the long sort of walk down to the car from this ledge that he stood on. And it was as I kind of went to shout something down over my left shoulder, you know, to Matt who stood on that ledge below that as I transferred my weight over to my left-hand side, and I always remember this so vividly, as my weight went down through my left foot, the section of rock that I just happened to be stood on, you know, just a bit of bad luck, that that section had a had a weakness in it somewhere. And as I leant one way, that sort of four-foot section of, of rock collapsed beneath my feet and sort of broke away from the from the main face of the, of the cliff and peeled away and I went with it. And, you know, in that next sort of three to four second period, which in my reality felt like, I don't know, half an hour, perhaps everything seemed to really slow down and, and just, I don't know, I felt suspended in, in air without being overly dramatic for, for no other reason, you know, not being melodramatic at all. I genuinely didn't think I was going to survive because the only thing between me and the very bottom was this one ledge that. I'd left a couple of minutes before that was no more than six foot wide. And if I didn't hit that, if I didn't stay on that, then it was an awful long way down to what was just a 45 degree slope at the bottom with however many more hundreds of meters before the car. And um, what I didn't know and what I couldn't have anticipated is that Matt had seen the rock break away, had taken a step to the side, had avoided being hit himself. And as I landed flat on my back at the base of this cliff, you know, towards one edge of this ledge, I then started to tumble. Matt probably had a split second decision as to what he did next. One option guaranteed his safety, which was to do nothing. And the other option risked his life 
but had the potential of saving mine. And he sprinted to intercept where he thought I was falling to. And he lunged forward and sort of grabbed grabbed hold of my climbing harness with probably no more than a second to spare. And my body was already kind of about to slip off that ledge. But he was grabbing a 75 kilo weight, probably with the gear I had on my harness, maybe an extra couple of kilos. So he could have very easily been dragged off with me. And um, yeah, I guess that is the power of unconditional love and the power of friendship that in those moments, you know, people don't question their own safety. They'll do whatever they can to, to save their, you know, save their best friend. And I would have done the same for him, obviously. And did Matt train with you? Was he, was he trained as well? Military trained? Yeah. So he is a mine clearance diver in the Navy. So he's had you know, a huge degree of, of medical training and, and his response to what happened was perfect. He knew not to move me. He pulled me back from from the edge of that kind of precipice, but he knew that there was potential just based on the way he'd seen me land that I'd sustained a spinal injury. One of the first things I said to him was, uh, you know, I want to stand up. And he said, no, no, stay there. And it was only once he convinced me to stay where I was that I realized that I, I didn't, I couldn't feel my legs. So I, I not you know i wasn't sure i could have stood it if i wanted to and, and you know what turned out had happened is that as i'd landed on my back I'd, I'd broken my back into two pieces and i'd severed my spinal cord so on impact I'd, I'd been paralyzed from the chest down had i tried to get up and to move it could have made the injury worse so matt did exactly the right thing he got on the phone to mountain rescue and you know over the course of what was a three-hour period yeah, he, he stayed with me for that first hour as we waited quite desperately for Mountain Rescue to turn up. And I'm fighting that sort of internal battle of of anxiety and apprehension about what this is and what this is going to mean for my life. And he, he did just what was required, which was to try and calm my mind a little bit. Mm-hmm. And he got me into a place mentally that by the time Mountain Rescue turned up and definitely by the point where three hours later, the Coast Guard helicopter is hovering above, I've kind of arrived at this place mentally that I'd kind of committed to myself that you know whatever this turns out to be and I, and I didn't know at that point the degree of damage I'd done you know whatever it turned out to be I just promised not to give up and that was I think a huge part in thanks to Matt because he in those early moments helped to calm me down mm-hmm. and just to you know I don't know not be overwhelmed by the enormity of, of, of what had just happened type thing. Yeah, almost helped to sort of subdue the initial trauma of what you were experiencing at that moment, which they they always say with the brain, it, it helps to, to process, doesn't it? So the days and weeks after, um, what, what sort of what happened then? Yeah, so that day would start ultimately what was a five-month journey through initially intensive care, going through a nine-hour surgery that evening, and, and I'd remained conscious for the whole thing, so I, I was I was very aware of of, of what had happened and and its potential impact as well. I, I don't think I was trying to kid myself, or I, I certainly wasn't deluded about the fact that I was badly injured. Um, and it was only the next morning that I was really told in, in black and white terms what had happened, and that you know I was now class, classified as someone with a spinal cord injury and somebody that would be permanently paralyzed you know from the chest down for life and there was no hope of recovery because what i wanted to hear was that you know if you give this a year of hard work and a year of hard rehabilitation you'll be back in the mountains that's kind of what i was hoping to hear so it was quite difficult and challenging emotionally to hear the opposite which was that there is no going back there's only kind of this future for you that you've got to try and mold into something that is or something that resembles something that you want to live so for me, that kind of promise on the cliffside of not being beaten, not giving up was was really difficult in the first week or two, you know, going through intensive care, those really early days of, of learning to accept that there was no going back. And um, yeah, it, it was the start of a five-month journey through spinal rehabilitation, which frustratingly starts with six weeks of what is called bed rest, where you're lying flat on your back for, for six weeks and everything is done for you right down to the most kind of intimate of things that you'd rather people not be doing. But, you know, that is the nature of a spinal injury and your body needs those first six weeks to start healing. And any movement is jeopardizing, you know, recovery. So 
it was a difficult six weeks, but I was very lucky that the Paralympics were on TV. And I watched the Paralympics through a completely different lens for the first time because it wasn't just, oh, aren't these people inspiring? You know, that you would do as an able-bodied person, and I certainly did. All of a sudden, these people became very real role models. And you had people, a lot of them that come from the forces, a lot of amputees, you know, a lot of um, people that had sustained an injury later in life had come from some sort of military background. And they were like the blueprint. They were showing how, you know, you could recapture and rediscover something special, even if life kind of takes this um, this turn that you could, there is no sort of like reverse gear or U-turn ability. And uh, yeah, I, I think that two weeks really gave me the fire and the motivation to to throw myself into the second half of the rehab process where you could physically start to improve things day by day and week by week for yourself. And I kind of committed to myself that if I was going to have to be in a wheelchair for the rest of my life, I was going to make make myself bloody good at being in a wheelchair. And that was one of the first things that I got told in intensive care from a patient that came in to see me as a bit of a morale boost, but did the complete opposite because they said that you've got to shed your previous identity and create a new one. And I, I kind of didn't want to do that. I wanted to still be me. I didn't want to shed this identity. I knew it might have to adapt a little bit. but So I think that second half of the rehab process, I started to learn that I didn't have to change. I didn't have to say goodbye to the old me. It's it's a continuation of the same story. But if anything, this this second half could be more fulfilling, more purposeful, and mean more than the first chapter ever had. Yeah. And uh, and yeah, and it was at the end of that process, you know, just before my discharge that I convinced Matt to drive me up to Manchester one day, basically sort of broke away from hospital for, for a day. And we went up to a kayak and canoe store and I spent pretty much every penny I'd saved from living in hospital for nearly five months on something I'd never done before. But in my mind... A kayak was the vehicle to freedom and the vehicle to adventure and the vehicle to that sense of camaraderie with your friends that I used to love about the mountains or you work together as a team. So I spent far too much money on something I had no proof I could physically do. And Matt kind of stood next to me and was like, well, if you're doing it, I'm doing it. So he did the same. And we left a couple of hours later with so many bits of gear and gadgetry that I still, some of it I haven't used seven years later. But it was like this real emotional and financial and physical commitment to to that next chapter and to to not saying goodbye to the sense of identity that I'd created and I and I and I loved yeah the sense of identity that you'd attached to adventure really as well and that was part of you and then it was a psychological shift not as you said not changing your identity but actually and who you were but actually still being who you are but you know having different goals and different aspirations and this is where it gets really amazing as well is because you talk about strength through adversity um and i think the kayaking from land's end to john o'groats 1400 kilometers. I mean, that's not just like a little paddle, is it? I mean, you didn't just decide to do a kind of 5, 10, 15, 20 miles. What was the time difference between you having the injury? I mean, how, talk us through that kind of process of of the cut from there to 1400 kilometers. Y- yes, that was a what would be four year journey. And like that journey, and I'll be completely open and transparent, started with being absolutely terrible people that knew something a bit about kayaking were right the ability to use legs and the ability to use core are are two very kind of like favorable conditions neither of which i had so i had to accept it was going to be a long slow road and initially i I couldn't stay up upright for more than maybe half a second or a second at best but over the course of months i really like just stuck with it and stuck with it and that ended up taking me to to paralympic sport and and becoming part of the para canoe team so it's a 200 meter sprint sport and you know my kind of goal was to go to Tokyo that was like a four-year journey that wasn't it wouldn't it be incredible if four years after watching the Paralympics on TV from hospital I could be doing the same service for someone that's like there now and uh yeah that journey was was incredible and you know when people asked me what my job was I was like a para-athlete and there was a there was a huge irony to that because I'd never really been good at any particular sport but during that process I met uh, one of the armed forces charities that really kind of like I didn't appreciate it at the time but altered the course of of where the future would go for the better and that was the armed forces para snow sports team and I met uh, the lady that runs charity called Liz 
And I was introduced to a series of characters that at the time, like I say, you don't know what significance these people are going to go on to have in your life. But I was flown out to Norway and three years after my accident, I'm in the mountains and I'm in snow for the first time since 2016. And I realized that, you know, you can still get out there and you can still experience these moments. But like I said earlier, you know, you just got to have got to do things a bit differently. You have to adapt. And it was there that I met Luke Wigman, Carl Simmons, Johnny Huntington. And we, one evening, as we sat around this sort of big dinner table in this Norwegian lodge, spoke about things that we'd love to do in dreams and, you know, wouldn't it be great if, and one of my ideas had always been, you know, wouldn't it be amazing to kayak from Land's End to John O'Groats, but it was a throwaway comment. And I think everyone's like, oh yeah, that'd be cool. And it was only after, you know, with the Paralympic journey, you had to be number one in the UK. So you had to finish first if you were to have any hope of going to Tokyo. And I was sort of finishing around second and it was looking really like it's getting tighter and tighter. And then just before that race season started, I injured my shoulder pretty badly and I couldn't race. So I kind of had seen this dream sort of slip through my fingers and I felt a little bit lost. And it was in that feeling of loss that I kind of rekindled this idea of wouldn't it be amazing to kite from Lansdowne to John O'Groats because it became like a, a sense of, I don't know, it was a drive and a t- determination to rehab a shoulder and to give myself something to aim for and not feel like I'd lost out on something, you know, from the Paralympics. So I called up Carl and Johnny and Luke and I basically said, do you remember that idea that we we spoke about very briefly? Do you fancy making it happen? And their response was, I, I think, you know, you're in the right company when there wasn't really any hesitation. And we committed ourselves to making it happen. And we got Liz involved and said, look, we're going to do this for the charity. We'll do this for AFPST. And we gave ourselves a year to make it happen. And during the course of that year, we met uh, Ben, who was recently been discharged from the military after being involved in a in a sort of accident where he um, received sort of, you know, gunshot wounds and blast injuries. And then Ben became part of the team. So we were a team of five attempting to do something that had never been done before. Lots of people told us we were absolutely nuts and we'd have no chance at all. And what I loved is that the five of us had all come from a background where there was some form of life-changing event, but the life-changing event hadn't really been the defining factor. It had been how those people took responsibility for turning it around so you know ben i just said luke stood on an id in afghanistan and sustained significant injuries to his lower right leg johnny um, was an army officer ultramarathon runner and had a brain bleed was paralyzed down the left side of his body carl had a spinal injury as well so we were five people that just knew the value of perseverance and knew the value of being able to adapt and improvise and we weren't kidding ourselves we weren't five high level sea kayakers but we were five people that were determined to make something happen 12 months later we're on the start line um five kilometers offshore of land's end where you know we would kind of try to stay away from the cliffs as much as we could which represented probably the biggest danger for us five moderately skilled kayakers and yeah, and it started what was ultimately, like you say, a 1,400-kilometer journey from the Atlantic Ocean up to the wild North Sea via some of the most dangerous coastal stretches of the UK, including Mort Point. I didn't realize the Mort word for French is translated to death, so it's quite literally called Death Point. Uh, Morecambe Bay, you know, for the obvious disaster that happened there. And yeah, moments that really tested us to our to our limit as a team, but we always pulled through because I think we had that shared goal, that shared shared vision and the shared purpose was to raise as much money for, for the charity as we could. And that helped to transcend the setbacks and the frustrations and the anxieties and, and the the scary moments that could have caused us just to pull in at any point, really. That's amazing. And you were supported by Team Forces to do the trip. So talk to me about the sort of anxieties and the challenges that you overcame, because as a team, obviously you had your individual challenges and unique challenges, but as a team, how did how did you overcome those challenges? Give uh, props to Team Forces. They did support from the outset. They made it happen. It's one of those things that these kind of expeditions cost, and it was Team Forces support that enabled us to do it. From an individual perspective, when it came to those challenges, I think I've sort of found myself in this in in this role and with a title of expedition leader. And I think that was purely because it was my idea. And I never really had any experience of leadership before. So I kind of, you know, from a personal perspective, fell into the trap of thinking that I needed to be at the front, 
the strongest, the fittest, the most competent, the most confident. And I didn't feel like any of those things. I felt like the opposite. I think as a team, what we realized, you know, as we sort of moved and pushed our kind of marker up the country day by day, week by week, is that we all went through phases of having good days and bad days and they're all interchangeable. They all happen at different points. For me, the first three to four days were probably the toughest, both physically as the body's trying to adapt and my body's trying to learn how to balance with like this moving carpet underneath you and waves and the swell picking you up and putting you down. And I guess the kind of um, the pressure I was putting on myself to, to not hold this team back because I was the most disabled. I didn't want to be the limiting factor. And as the expedition leader, I wanted to try and I don't know, do myself justice. But day three, day four onwards, I started to build in confidence. And I think, say for Johnny, had a really great first three, four days. And I think he 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 fell in on day four. He capsized on day four. Um, the weather was a bit colder and that does affect his kind of neurological function. So I think he had a really tough day, day four, day five. And for others, they had that later in the expedition. And it was just this ability to help and I guess to read each other, to read what we're feeling. And what I loved about the five of us is that there was no toxic masculinity. There was no alpha maleness going on, you know, in a, in a negative sense. It was very honest, very transparent, very open. And the conversations were such, which meant that we knew when certain people were struggling. We knew if someone had had a hard day. And I think what we did was we constantly appraised our approach to the expedition as we moved forward. And there were some days where we probably took a bit more risk than we should have. One example of that is we were kind of off the coast of um, the northwest of England, so off the Cumbrian coastline. And for the next four days, we were going to sort of follow the coastline round up into southwest Scotland. And by hugging the coastline, you know, we would we would maybe do 50 kilometres a day and it would take four days. But we could alternatively go straight from Whitehaven across the middle of the Irish Sea and arrive in southwest Scotland which was about 80 kilometers away and would save us three days if we did it in a day. We, as a team, took the decision to, to take the risk and that it would be worth it. It would potentially be worth the upside. And I remember that we're probably five hours in, we're 40 kilometers across this huge kind of you know open water crossing. And we're, the, we're in the middle of the Irish Sea. And we are two very small kayaks with one very, very small support boat. And none of those vehicles are designed to be you know, out in this environment where it's dominated by these big ocean-going vessels and ferries that are going backwards and forwards from Northern Ireland to Scotland and Northwest England. And the fog starts to, you know, that sea mist starts to close in. And at one point, visibility is down to a kilometre. It's then down to 500 metres, then to 200 metres. And you feel very exposed and almost very isolated. And we were involved in a sort of situation where briefly we lost contact between the support boat and the kayak. And there's a real panic that I think it was Luke and Carl that were on the kayak that had gone missing. There was no radio comms with them. There was no visual way of identifying where they were. And the reality was that in the middle of the Irish Sea, 40 kilometers from any, any form of land, and with visibility of probably less than 100 meters at that point, if we didn't find them in the next half an hour, you know, a bit like walking in the desert, they might think they're kayaking in a straight line, but they veered off and and we'd never see them and they'd potentially wash up on some shore however many hours later. But I don't think any of us religious, but thank God they uh, appeared in the mist, you know, the bright orange buoyancy aid sort of flared through the distance and we went over to them. And I think for us, we realised that the line of risk had been pushed a little bit too far. And that's probably because we got three weeks in with no real hiccups. And I think sometimes that confidence breeds complacency and maybe we shouldn't have done it. But uh, but yeah, that was probably the biggest emotional challenge we went through because we uh, all felt the very real impacts of if this goes wrong, what could happen. That sense of relief when you saw the little <laughs> them yeah. sort of paddling towards you must have been huge and you managed to reconnect sort of radio and everything. And so what did you do from then? You carried on with your risk or did you... We were kind of committed at that point because there were... If we were going to turn back, we'd have to paddle another 40 kilometers. But what we did was just recalculate the way we were going to do it a little bit. So no longer would the support boat be allowed to drift quite as far from the kayak. In the middle of the Irish Sea, 40 kilometers in, there was no land in any direction. So the kayak had no way of knowing in which direction to go apart from a compass bearing. So what had been happening is that the support boat had been in front, carving through the water, 
and the idea was that the kayaks would see the support boat and know that that's where they were headed. That was their heading. And then obviously what happened happened and we just kind of said, look, we can't afford to have that benefit anymore. We can't afford the risk. So the kayak would always be in front of the support boat and the support boat would just stalk it in the water no more than you know 20 or 30 meters behind and, and always able just to catch up if it needs to. And we got to land and I think we were pretty, pretty relieved to do so. And um, yeah, I think we just doubled down on that kind of safe risk assessment from there on in. Yeah, we still had another eight or nine days to go at that point. We were into Scotland, but not home yet. So you would basically go back onto land every night, replenish, but the injuries, the blisters, the, to get back out, the soreness. I mean, talk, talk to me a bit about that. The thing I was really concerned about from a spinal injury point of view was kind of, you know, below my chest, I can't feel. So I wouldn't know if I had a pressure sore or I wouldn't know if there was something that was rubbing that was kind of wearing away the skin. I was very lucky that none of that had happened. But as a team, I think collectively, we'd been picking up these niggles and overuse injuries and stuff. And we were very lucky that Ben's partner, now fiance, was a physio. So every evening we'd come in, Liz, who um, runs AFPST, and Kate were kind of our support crew. So they would follow us up the coastline in a van. Uh, Kate would get a physio table out and get her elbow into people's shoulders. Liz would have a big paella dish of, of chili con carne or whatever it was on the go. And you know what? It was It was the support of those two that really did facilitate the success of the expedition because it meant that we could get back in off the water and concentrate on you know, rest and recovery and, and, and doing all the bits of admin that we needed to, to kind of like, like you say, those little injuries that take a bit of time to tape up and whatever. Having Kate and Liz there just meant that we were fed, we were watered, we were, you know, butchered with a physio's elbow in sore spots, but it kind of helped us to just keep going up the coastline. And we were doing it a lot quicker than we thought. So often it seemed that uh, Liz and Kate had the most adventurous day trying to track where we were in the water and predict where we were going to be because we didn't always have a signal. Did you just stay in B&Bs or what, how did you have a sort of support? What, what what did you do there? Liz had been very expert in her liaison with um, with Travelodge and Travelodge had essentially kitted us up for the whole for the whole expedition. So it was um, a whistle-stop tour of, of uh, I, God, I don't know how many, 26 different travel lodges in the country, but that was great because it meant that, you know, you could have a, a good shower and, a, and a, a relatively good night's sleep before. But that always depended on the the tide. So there were some mornings that we knew that we would have to be up and out at half four in the morning to be on the water for six because, you know, the tide is going to run one way for six hours before it turns and kind of, you know, goes against us. So we were just having to to make those kind of calculations of early early mornings or late finishes or both on some days. Being out on the sea, I mean, it's, it, you know, we sit here on land, but it's, as you said, it's like, as you said, a moving carpet, but did you have any high seas to deal with or any challenges out there? As you, you mentioned earlier about the, the boats and the ships, but what are the challenges you face? Probably the, the day that that really came to a head was when we were crossing from the mainland of Southwest Scotland and passing up the west-hand side of the Isle of Arran. So it's kind of a big inland sea area. And it was going to be about a sort of 40-kilometer crossing to Campbelltown, which was, you know, another straight line. But, you know, we could have potentially followed the coastline of the Isle of Arran. But this straight line looked like it was going to be fine. The weather was good. The, the conditions that were predicted were, were well within what we've been used to paddling in. And we get probably two hours into this crossing and the waves and the wind start to pick up. And when you have tide and, and waves heading in one direction and the wind against it, you've got wind over tide. And that really helps to pick the the sort of profile of the waves up and they and they suddenly become a bit more intense and and um aggressive looking and we're two hours across and we're, and we're kind of having to make a calculation as to whether we just drop a marker as to you know this is where we're going to finish today and we're going to get back on board the, the safety boat and we'll finish this tomorrow we'll have to come back out and finish it tomorrow so we make the decision to do so as a team we made every decision as a team it wasn't you know what do you think darren as a, this was your idea you know it was kind of always a what is in our best interest so we decided to get back on the safety boat about half an hour later you know, we're battling through these really rising waves and this really aggressive water and the safety boat is struggling. And I'm sat next to Chris, who was our, who's the pilot, who was incredibly skilled and had a lot of experience and did such a good job. But, you know, half an hour after we've, we'd mounted back onto the boat and we'd strapped the kayaks down, we're trying to like exfil from where we were. 
I remember he looked across at me and said that he was like, this is 50-50 whether we get back or not. And I was like, sorry. And he was like, it's 50-50 whether this boat makes it back. This boat is not really designed. And he's having to really quite aggressively turn into waves. And you've got, obviously, the profile under the water, which is throwing up different areas of, of the sea that if you looked at a map, you think it would just all move in unison. But because of the profile of the Isle of Arran underwater, you've got some real like turbulent spots where waves should be coming at you from the left like everywhere else, but you've got a sudden bash coming from the right. Yeah, we I think in total it took close to an hour for this boat to battle through what should have took it 20 minutes. You know, it should have taken no more than 20 minutes in good conditions or, or moderate conditions. And there's just this tension on board the safety boat. I'm gripping one of the railings off to my left. And Chris looks across at me again and says, if this boat flips, I'll come back for you. And by that, he means, you know, if this flips and you're stuck under here, and I was surrounded by bits of kit. He was like, don't worry, I won't just leave you. And I was like, ah, okay, this felt re- it suddenly felt very real. And by the time we did get to Campbelltown and we got through the harbour wall and it was suddenly calm, there was a collective like from the team, but also there was just, you burn such energy like that. I think, you know, we all had our survival in Chris's hands. Yeah, I think we were all relieved to get to Campbelltown, even though we were, I think, four hours ahead of Kate and Liz, who were driving around the coastline. And the only form of transport for me was a and q trolley. So the lads loaded me onto a and q trolley and pushed me into the nearest pub. <laughs> Brilliant. That would have been a great sight. And I mean, what was going through your mind? I mean, people talk about resilience and adaptability and building resilience, but actually at that moment, it, when automatically you would panic or you would feel really vulnerable, particularly in your situation. How did you cope with that sort of mentally what 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 did you use any kind of special strategies or anything like that no i wish i had no didn't use any special strategies i think there was a lot of faith in chris i think there was nothing that i could really do to help i think that's the the default and probably the default for all of us on board was is there anything we can do to help and there wasn't this was kind of like chris and his skill with the with the boat versus the conditions uh, we had made the right decision to pull out when we did you know we couldn't have predicted that things were going to deteriorate as quickly as they did but we we knew that that could be the case i guess and um, particularly in you know the irish sea that kind of territory and yeah you know what I, i'm not entirely sure where i went in my head for for that hour it was a very tense hour i don't think i was trying to whisk myself away mentally to somewhere else I think I was very present but it's one of those things I guess when you've been through similar experiences before and I always find my accident as a as a source of strength when I need it because it's one of those validations of when you go through something difficult and you come out the other side and you prove to yourself that mentally you can tough it out and mentally you can be resilient even if you feel quite vulnerable which I did in my accident and once again you know five years later I feel very vulnerable in the middle of that turbulent water once you come out the other side i think it reaffirms that you're you're stronger in those moments and you realize so i think it's just that recognition that in moments of vulnerability and in moments of uncertainty you can remain calm and like i said yeah that's what matt talked me through i probably needed matt in my ear again to talk me through it and just to kind of settle my settle my mind down a bit but i'd had the benefit of that climbing accident experience to kind of I think be able just to turn the volume down of, of anxiety a little bit. And probably of all five people on board that or six with Chris, we probably had six different strategies for how we dealt with it. Chris probably had the one strategy that took his mind off anxiety the most because he was the one responsible for kind of, you know, like being on edge and, and sort of making those calculations with split second timing as to which way he tipped the boat into left or right, whether he revved the engine or... So he was probably so absorbed with it that the anxiety probably wasn't as high as the five people on board that were having just to exist through it and not panic, like you know, like you say. Crossing the finish line, that must have been, felt like quite a tremendous effort. We did it quicker than we thought. So we rounded the final bit of headland in 26 days and, you know, two kilometres further off in the distance are the, the kind of outcrop of John O'Groats. And yeah, 26 days after setting off from Land's End, we'd far out, see, you know, exceeded our many people's kind of expectations of how far we would get. In some ways, we'd exceeded our own predictions. We, we knew there was always a huge degree of risk that 
uh, risk of failure when it came to the expedition. And we, I think, just rolled the dice and kind of said, look, if, if we fail, we'll fail trying and we'll know we gave it everything. We were fortunate enough that decisions went in our favor, that conditions went in our favor, even though challenging, as we've just been talking about. Yeah, it was it was an incredibly proud moment to see, you know, those first footsteps onto the slipway at John O'Groats and and I felt proud of the guys I'd done it with because I knew how much it would mean to each of them. It was the sort of pinnacle of all of our recoveries to, to that point. And actually arriving in John O'Groats has been the real start of the fun stuff for all of us. I think it was a real validation of exactly how capable each of us still were. You know, we weren't a inferior version of our previous selves. We were, if anything, emboldened and and braver and more resilient and mentally stronger. Even if physically we looked a little bit different now you know one of us is sat in a wheelchair and one of us has got a limp or whatever it may be arriving into John O'Groats and I always remember an old couple asking me where we'd come from because we were like hugging and celebrating <laughs> and you know like probably kissing on cheeks and stuff and this old um old couple asked me where we come from and I said Cornwall and she laughed and said no seriously where have you come from and I was like Cornwall and she was like no seriously where have you come from and I was like no I'm being um yeah we came from Land's End we've not in a day, granted. I think it helped to change people's perceptions of what is possible. And we yeah, celebrated, took the the picture that you have to at the signpost, and we celebrated with Kate, with Liz, my partner TJ joined at that point as well. And it's just been the most brilliant launch point for each of us, for each of the five. You know, we've gone on to do other things since that this expedition gave us the confidence that we could take on these big challenges and, and come through it. That's quite incredible. I mean, and... <laughs> It just there's so much really to talk through as well. I mean, you are the first disabled person to complete the iconic World Marathon Challenge as well. Um, free diving. I mean, I want to talk about that as well. So seven marathons, seven continents, seven days. I mean, it's just one thing I'd like to touch on first, though. You know, there's 13.9 million disabled people in the UK. And from a personal perspective, my sister is registered disabled. And I recognize that the the world isn't really set the nation still isn't that great around for for disabled people and i think we just need to talk a little bit about what you're doing for disabled people really is incredible but actually a little bit about the um the world marathon challenge that that would be amazing for you just talk a bit about that i think my experience of when i was first you know in hospital and when i was first disabled and and it carries that title and i and i carry that as a badge of pride now but at the time it was i don't know how i felt about it to be to know that I fell in a category. The hospital would kind of bring in people that had maybe been injured five or 10 or 15 years prior to come in and to kind of give you a bit of a lay of the land and like, this is how life's going to be and, you know, warts and all. But what those people all did were they reaffirmed the limitations. And I remember sitting in some of the talks and some of them were to a group of us and some were like one-to-one. And it was a lot of, you can't, you won't, don't expect, don't think you'll be able to do this. And it really kind of, I don't know, because I'd, I had no lived experience of what living with a disability or with a spinal injury would be like, kind of what they were telling you was gospel in a way. And it was only when those people in the Paralympics, I started to hear a bit of their backstories from the commentators. Oh, so-and-so is a T6 spinal cord injury. They had a car crash and that's the same injury as me. And I'm watching them sprint down a track on a, on a you know, in a racing chair in front of 50,000 people. I'm kind of like, well, that life doesn't look too bad. So I think I've just committed myself to being a more positive example than the people that were wheeled in to come and see me. So that's probably where a bit of the determination to prove what is still possible comes from. I think it's just try and lead by the example I wish I'd seen is, is probably the way I've seen it. And, you know, we came home from John O'Groats and I remember TJ on the on the drive. We, we had a holiday at the end in Scotland and she knows what I'm like and she knows my character well enough to know that I always need to have something in the works just to give that sense of, it just transcends all of the daily setbacks and frustrations of a spinal injury. It just helps you to overcome those and, and they're just par for the course kind of thing. And I wasn't quite sure. I, I, I knew that I had this new sense of confidence and, and optimism and aspiration. And a couple of weeks later, I got a phone call from the guy that runs the World Marathon Challenge. And he said, look, I'm, I'm looking for somebody to complete it on a set of wheels for the first time. 150 people have done it in history, but that's 150 able-bodied runners on two legs. And I want to prove that it's inclusive, it's accessible, and it's possible. You know, you up for it. 
and I think I'd, I said yes before he finished his sentence. And he was like, brilliant. What's your current, you know, marathon PB? And I kind of hesitated because I had never done a marathon and I was considering lying to him. And I thought it's probably not the best basis to move forward on. So I just came clean and I said, look, I've never done one. And I always remember he almost retracted the offer. He kind of tried to walk himself back a little bit. And so I said, look, if, you, if it's not your thing, don't worry. And I was like, well, you know, when is it? And it was in a year's time. And I was like, well, with a year's notice, you know, I took myself from not being able to wheel myself around my house because of my shoulder to doing what we just did. So I know, I know that there can be a huge uplift in your potential in a year. Give him credit. He was like, okay, all right, let's do it. And uh, yeah, a year of training and completely switching up what I was doing in terms of my sort of personal training. And uh, yeah, we were then flying on a Russian cargo transport plane into northern Antarctica. The weather is minus 27. The wind speed's about 60 miles an hour. And you're kind of, you know, minutes away from getting out of that plane and attempting to do something that has never been done before and attempting to do something that there is no physical proof will work. I, I didn't know whether what I was going to be using would get stuck in the snow or would break or whether you know the, the temperature would mean that my body would react in a certain way because I can't regulate temperature below where my injury is. So I could get really cold and could go hypothermic. Anyway, there were lots of unanswered questions. And uh, yeah, it was the, I would say the toughest five hours and 50 minutes of my life, but probably 2016 will always have that title. But, you know, five hours and 50 minutes of battling it through really, you know, powerful winds and, and just through that sheer cold that left your skin on your face feeling really tight. And those patches of snow that were thicker than maybe a couple of inches where everything would just grind to a halt and you needed every physical ounce of strength to get it going. And then it took, yeah, five hours and 50 minutes to, to finish, I remember at some point in those hours and minutes, I'd convinced myself I was only here to do one marathon. I'd like convinced myself I was just doing an Antarctic marathon and that was it. I remember being given my medal by the, the race organizer and he said, brilliant. And he looked at his watch and said, if you want to get back on the plane, we're going to take off in about an hour and we're going to be starting marathon number two in about 12 hours time. And he wasn't kidding. You know, this was the, the schedule was the schedule and it was just fast and furious from you know Antarctica to Cape Town from minus 27 to plus 30 and you've just you know slept awfully on a plane that we all know what it's like you know you wake up with a injury you didn't know you had because you've slept funny and and your neck now hurts when it didn't before it was um just the second day <laughs> you're already exhausted but you did it seven continents seven marathons which is quite amazing an amazing thing um i also want to talk to you about your free diving because that's just incredible what you can do there talk to me a little bit about that yeah i think what i've had the benefit of realizing really early on and, and the kayak did this the kayak took you from you know what became your mode of transport every day which is a wheelchair you got out of it, you got in your kayak and you drifted off and you kind of just drifted away from that, what I saw as the, at the time as a symbol of limitation. I didn't quite have my perception of a wheelchair the way I do now, which is it's kind of this vehicle to freedom. I know it sounds very cliche, but it is your A to B, but it enables you to go and to do these things. And without it, you'd still be stuck indoors, crawling around on your backside type thing. But for me, I saw a picture of somebody free diving on, on Instagram and I watched them kind of like immersed in the water, pulling down to crazy depths all on one breath, you know, no oxygen tank. And I remember seeing the picture and thinking, what would look different if that was me? Because he's pulling himself down using his arms, descending on this rope. And I messaged the, the, the account that I'd seen it on. I said, look, have you ever had anybody with a spinal injury come and give freediving a go? Their response was instant. It was no, but we'd love to. <laughs> so about a month later, I find myself driving down to Vobster Key, which is a, a, a quarry that's been flooded in, uh, in Bath near Froome. It was that first opportunity to, yeah, get out of my chair, put the wetsuit on to dive into the water and to dive down to, you know, initially what you're only doing, like 10 or 20 feet. But once you're underwater, you just, you, you feel quite limitless because your body moves in ways that I, I, I physically can't move my body on land. And I felt like those limits and the obvious reminders of disability weren't there anymore. I was doing just as much as the other people that were on the course with me that were first, you know, first time free divers and beginners. And the people running the course were like, look, we've never had anybody with a spinal injury qualify, but we'd love to to make it happen. We'd love to to work on this with you. So 
over the course of the next year and a half. I became the first disabled qualified freediver in the world, I think, and learned to do all of the things that an able-bodied freediver would learn to do, including if you're 30 foot down with another diver and they suddenly go unconscious, how does somebody that only uses two hands to swim get that other person up and themselves up? Just through trial and error and adapt and improvise, we always found a way of making it possible. And every time I free dive and every time I've, and I will in the future, I don't perceive myself as disabled anyway, but underwater, it's the last consideration on my mind. I feel very liberated, very free. The clue's in the title, isn't it? Free diving. And I've been lucky enough to do it in Tenerife. You've got water that's piercingly blue that you can see for hundreds of meters in every direction. And a bit like climbing and mountaineering, it's a sport that with practice, you hone your skills physically and you hone your skills mentally and you can progress. And it's probably a bit perverse that I've swapped one thing for another thing. But with climbing, the more efficient you are, the higher you can go to simplify it. And with free diving, the more efficient you are, the calmer you are, the more you can quieten, quieten that voice of inner doubt, the deeper you can go because the more anxious you are the more nervous you are the more you burn that energy you burn that oxygen and you then you know are in a situation where you're you're running out of oxygen you need to turn back whereas the best free divers in the world are just incredibly skilled at calming their mind and calming the beat of their heart and burning less oxygen i'm very lucky that i found some sports post-injury that all of these things i'd I'd never done before my injury that's brilliant in its own way because there's no direct comparison it feels new and it, and it feels normal to me. I think if I tried to throw myself back into rock climbing, I'd be frustrated at how hard and difficult and the lack of flow. So I've kind of thrown myself into to new experiences where it just feels like this is normal. There's no new normal. This is just normal. What's your next kind of plan? What are you doing next? I'm very lucky that I've been given some opportunities in the last few years, one of which was um, to be part of the Channel 4 programme that's going to be coming out in 2024, where myself and two others, all three of us disabled with spinal injuries, skied across Europe's largest ice cap, the Vatniuko in in Iceland. It's 150 kilometres. And a bit like the kayaking thing, we became the first disabled team to have done it. It's kind of opened up the the door for for the next opportunity, which is to ski, to sit ski the last three degrees to the South Pole, so the final 333 kilometres at the present time. The biggest distance done by somebody on a sit ski in Antarctica to reach the pole is the final um, the final degree, so 111 kilometers. And um, yeah, I'm not, I've never been, and, and I think people that know me will vouch for this. I've never been someone that's bothered about having the title of longest, furthest, fastest, or whatever. So I wouldn't just want to go in and do 112 kilometers just to win the title. This is about the experience and, and kind of, you know, it, it being part of something bigger some bigger purpose so next december you know be going down with a with a team as part of a team of four including matt the guy that saved my life you know and and without whom i wouldn't be here um one of the guys i met um in the ss reserve and um with one other as well and yeah we're going to be doing it for for wings for life which is one of the spinal cord research charities that my hope is that the research they're doing means that in 10 years time there'll be a boy or a girl who's just in hospital, who's been given the same prognosis as me, but there's a but, and that but is that, you know, thanks to scientific research and breakthroughs, there's something we can do that will give you the ability to walk and and walk through those doors and leave hospital. That's the kind of big purpose behind this. And like we were saying earlier, hopefully it inspires people that are disabled, hopefully it inspires people that aren't disabled to get out and to, you know, to to take on a challenge, physical or mental, because the comfort zone is is great, but we don't want to live there for too much of of our time. Absolutely. It's so, so incredible to hear all these stories. But what would you say the nation needs to do around the kind of 22% of our population is disabled? Is there anything in our day to day that you think that we could be doing or um, I mean, I only, as I said, touched on it earlier that my sister's registered disabled and only until she was like that was, you know, going up a pavement or getting into a shop or these sort of tiny things. What kind of things can we do as a nation and as individuals to support more people that are disabled, would you say? The first thing that always comes to my mind is people that are in their immediate circle. So immediate, so your, so your example, immediate networks so of family, friends. And it's about, I'm very lucky that the people that were in my immediate circle are empowerers. So instead of, like had Matt and my mum, to pick two, had they been 
of a mindset of now you're injured, now you're disabled, you've got to live a life that's a bit more sheltered and, and you know, um, lacks the aspiration of your previous life because now you can't do that anymore. What I had was the opposite. I had a network of friends, a network of family that empowered me to bounce back or to bounce forward and to not live a limited life. They made every opportunity available to me, including hiring a swimming pool the day after my discharge from hospital so that I could learn to kayak for the first time. So I had people that really helped to widen my horizons and, and really helped me to make everything possible. And I think probably the biggest power when it comes to you know what can we do as individuals for those closest to us that find themselves in that position. It's just to be an enabler, be an empowerer. Don't be somebody that tries to limit their potential or limit their kind of sense of aspiration. If I look at the people I went through and I spent five months with in hospital, if we take 20 people, 10 have gone one way and 10 have gone the other. And the 10 that have made the good positive transformation in their life have had a supportive network around them that has helped them to foster a sense of purpose and a sense of drive and determination to get to a particular point. And the others, you know, without reading too much into the situation, they had people that didn't do that. They didn't enable them and they've not found that purpose or that reason to get up out of bed and to put all of those troubles to one side. Yes, there's probably government legislation and curves that we could drop down a bit more um, to make things practically easier on a day-to-day basis. But I think probably the biggest difference we can make is person-to-person, family and friend-to-friend. We are the people that will inspire them or empower them or enable them or not. And I'm very lucky that I've got the empowerers and the enablers around me. And what would you say to that person who may be listening now, sort of who may feel limited in whether it's um, personal, uh, financial, disabled? What, What would you say to that person now? Not be afraid to start small. I think it's very easy to to look at some, and I mean, I'm guilty of it myself in the last hour, is that we've spoken about some really big things that have been done. But that's because we've had the benefit of seven years of story here. I didn't leave hospital and suddenly declare to the world that I was going to become the first person to this or the first person to that. It all started with these really tiny steps forward. And I, and I mean, sometimes like if I look back at it, I'm like, how was I not frustrated by that? You know, falling in in a swimming pool every second and just getting back in and going again, getting back in and go again, falling in, falling in, falling in, and not being deterred by that kind of um, initial setback. And I think sometimes when we compare, especially in the modern world, social media and that, we compare ourselves to people that are maybe five or 10 or have many years further down the journey or have had the opportunities that we haven't had. And that puts us off from taking any form of action. Probably the best single bit of advice I got in hospital was think about where you want to be in, the lady said four years, it was a therapist. And she said, think about where you want to be in four years and make that thought aspirational and and like, you know, go for it. Where do you want to be if you go for it in four years? And then she encouraged me just to retrace those steps back to right here, right now. And she was like, I want you to tell me what the first small step was. And she was like, it might look like nothing to everybody else, but to you is a is a you know a, a small but significant step forward. And um, it was after that conversation that I went and texted Matt and said, "There's something I need you to do with me." And that's when I decided to buy a kayak. So to the outside world, everyone thought I was nuts, and everybody thought I was being a bit stupid. But to me, it was that first tiny step forward. And it's ultimately these tiny steps forward that will lead you to some of these big things if that interests you. But not everybody wants to do these big physical challenges because it's not what we're passionate about and we shouldn't all be the same. We'd be a very boring world if we were all the same, wouldn't it? But actually, it's so small little sort of goals that you've got to just acknowledge along the way. And if you're going through a, a tough time or if you're looking at getting to a goal, it's, it's like one thing at a time. And as you say, you know, you've know, you achieved some great things, but not without any sort of adversity or, or real challenge along the way. Yeah, for sure. And, and it just it's just character growth, isn't it? Mm. Even in tough times, there is the opportunity to to strengthen our resolve and our sense of character and and we don't have to lose our sense of identity and I certainly didn't lose my sense of identity from the guy seven years ago and you've been married this year TD and TJ have got married yeah that's the main achievement of the last seven years I'm not even joking I'm being deadly serious I'm punching um <laughs> and and it's one of those ones that you know I wouldn't have met her had life not changed. So that's another reason that I feel very lucky that I had a bad day in 2016. She's shown and proved every single day that it doesn't matter if you're disabled or not. 
It's about the person inside. You know, after going through, I don't often say it, but the heartbreak of a relationship that broke up while I was in hospital, you know, when I was first injured. And that really kind of, I don't know, made me fear the worst when it came to the potential for future dating and people being able to look beyond a spinal injury or a wheelchair. And um, it's funny that in those moments we catastrophize and we really kind of like think that life's never going to be the same again. And then how many years later you meet the person that you probably always were meant to meet and they show you that um, it doesn't matter at all. And actively she forgets all the time. We'll go out places and she'll get out of the car and walk off and my chair's (laughs) in the boot. And I'm like (laughs) looking around to honk the horn and and she keeps saying, she's like, I'm sorry, love, but I just forget sometimes. And I wouldn't ever want her to change that. It just proves that her perception is not a negative one. It's just been so amazing to talk to you today. And thank you so much for your time. It's just been absolutely brilliant. I was just going to say thank you to to the team at Team Forces. I think, you know, it extends way beyond just me. You know, when we look at the difference that their support made to the five of us in Kike for Heroes, lands into John O'Groats. What Team Forces does is it, I think, enables people that are, you know, currently serving or former servicemen and women that have gone through some form of life-changing event to overcome. And it, it enables those kind of, you know, big dreams to be fulfilled. And we're so lucky in this country that we've got organizations like Team Forces because sometimes these things cost and Mm -hmm. it's the likes of Team Forces that sees the magic in it and for no other you know reason apart from to support this this really special community of people we're very thankful. Thank you so much Darren for for your time today. No pleasure thank you. That was the Team Forces podcast. If you enjoyed the conversation, please use your podcast app to follow or subscribe so you never miss an episode.